You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 11th of March 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Emma Nelson and a very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up... My guests, Vincent McAvinney and Peter Goodman, will discuss the economic impact of coronavirus and what leaders in the world of finance are doing to curb the fallout. We'll also look at the UK budget and ask if we can see an end to austerity in the country. And is working from home all it's cracked up to be? We weigh the pros and cons of staying in your pyjamas and look at where creativity and productivity are lost when we don't make the trek into the office. Plus... He did not want to see the hand of the artist in anything. And as you know, he worked from photographs even rather than his own brilliant drawings. Monocle's Robert Bound on the enduring appeal of Andy Warhol. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle's House View starts now. And a very warm welcome to today's programme. I'm joined by Peter Goodman, who's Global Economics Correspondent for The New York Times, and by Vincent McAvinney, who's a political journalist and regular Monocle 24 contributor. Gentlemen, welcome to the studio. The Bank of England has cut interest rates in an emergency move to bolster the economy. The Governor, Mark Carney, also said billions of pounds would be freed up to help banks support firms who may find the next weeks and months unpredictable at best. Peter, I'll start with you. What exactly is in this announcement? The announcement was uh, that the bank is going to do what it has. It's going to use the tool that it has available to make credit flow more freely. I mean, this is uh, clearly an indication that uh, central bankers, not just in the UK, but in the States, in Europe, in Japan, and really uh, throughout the global economy, are increasingly concerned that this coronavirus outbreak has the potential to do serious economic harm. Uh, People are now openly talking about a global recession. Uh, Europe is almost certainly in recession. Japan is in recession. China is likely to slow uh, to its uh, worst uh, pace of growth uh, in the entirety of the reform era. The U.S. is probably not in recession, but could, could get there. So it's the latest indication that we're looking at truly an emergency. Um, We're looking at an emergency and um, we have the Bank of England Governor Mark Carney sort of coming in as the shepherd again. It's this, he came in saying, the Bank of England's role is to help UK businesses and households manage through an economic shock that could prove large and sharp, but should be temporary. There there was a voice of sort of reason and wisdom coming out of of the Bank of England today. Yeah, there is. I mean, it's interesting timing because Mark Carney actually leaves as the governor this Friday. So it is the kind of final throw of the dice for him. And it is a big move. And you think for his predecessor, uh, sorry, for his successor, it'll then be kind of easier because he's kind of left him this move of, you know, you didn't have to take this difficult decision as the first thing. I've done that. So any blame for anything can come to me, but hopefully it'll work for you. So that is interesting. It feels like you know, it was extraordinary, you know, in living in the, not for a long time has there been an announcement like this uh, out of the normal schedule of them, but also on a kind of budget day as well here in the UK. This is the first budget. It was delayed from November 
after the decision to have the election. We've lost a chancellor. Uh, and so it does seem like it was the big announcement to kind of get everyone kind of focused on the budget today to make them see that there are going to be real financial impacts from it. Now we're going to move on to the budget in a little while, but let's let's stay with this, this, this cut in interest rates. To cut from 075 to 0.25%, Peter, you can't go any further after that, can you? You go to zero. Well, this is part of the problem. I mean, when rates are this low, cutting them lower tends not to have much of an effect. This is largely symbolic. It's about... Uh, confidence, uh, signaling that the people in charge of the money supply get that there really is an emergency. But there just isn't really all that much that a central bank can do. The, The reason why economies are grinding to a halt in many parts of the world has nothing to do with a lack of availability of credit. Uh, I mean, if you make borrowing terms cheaper, that's not going to send people streaming to the shopping mall if they're worried that they're going to contract a lethal virus and and die. Uh, And the same goes for for factories. I mean, factories have been shut down in China. Uh, They're shut down in Italy. As we speak, Italy is a major source of auto parts uh, that feed into German factories. German factories then supply Chinese factories. I mean, if if you can't get a part to make the thing that you make in your factory, uh, the fact that suddenly interest rates are lower really doesn't help. Now, interest rates do help corporations that have gorged on extraordinary, really unprecedented amounts of debt uh, ever since central banks started easing uh, credit going back to the 2008 financial crisis. And a lot of those companies are in trouble. Uh, if, if their earnings start to be hit, they could face uh, credit downgrades, borrowing costs for them could go up. Some of those companies could then start uh, laying off workers or scrapping expansion plans, and that could make the damage of an economic downturn even worse. So part of what central banks are doing is is keeping borrowing costs uh, low to protect those corporations that have borrowed a lot. Yes, it, it, it is that age-old problem that um, you don't want to go out and spend money if you are in the middle of a recession and you... Uh don't want to go outside, or indeed you can't go outside. But um, Vincent, we've we've heard today that Christine Lagarde had a video call with EU leaders on Tuesday night to uh, basically say, stop being complacent towards coronavirus. Um, she's asked EU leaders to launch more urgent action to do something about it. How complacent do we believe people have been? I mean, you know, now we've got the head of the IMF coming in saying, come on, get a move on. I think it's, you know, it's been building up a pressure valve for the last couple of years that in the age of, you know, disinformation and fake news, people don't know what to trust. And so it was always inevitable that some kind of crisis like this would come along at some point. And because of authoritarian regimes rising up, putting out propaganda, telling people not to trust news sources and their own governments, you know, even on in my local neighbourhood uh, Facebook group, you know, some of the absolute rubbish that I've seen people linking to from, you know, fake news websites, clickbait sites about the virus and things like that. It's just led to this pattern of total confusion about it. And it doesn't help that, you know, we have a government in place here with a member who famously said, uh, you know, that we've had too much of experts recently. You know, when you still don't have leadership coming clearly from, you know, governments, particularly, it, it is this really shows where the vacuum is for the President of the United States to give clear directions, which the rest of the world then follows. I think a lot of people are still being complacent about it. And it's like, you know, this is massive. Going off the rate of what's happening in Italy, it does look like it's higher than the 1% fatality. At the moment, it's looking kind of between 3 and 4%, which, you know, winter flu is 0.1%. This is much worse than that. And people just haven't been taken seriously. But it's, it's because there hasn't been a real 
clear message to people. I still think that policymakers, government messaging machines just do not understand that people get their information now from these little machines that we all carry around in our pockets and they haven't found a clear way to communicate effectively public health warnings. We are experiencing a time, aren't we, Peter, where um, actually the politicians have the least idea of what to do and what's going on. Well, it could be that the standard toolkit for dealing with an economic crisis just doesn't work in the face of what is a public health emergency. The the ultimate threat to the global economy uh, is that people are getting sick and dying and people are afraid. And when people are afraid, they do things like uh, sell their portfolios. They don't go to work. They don't go to shops and, and, and spend money. And you have an economic downturn. And and the way to address that fundamental threat, uh, which is this coronavirus outbreak, is to put the clamps further on the economy by making it hard for people to move around, by canceling things like trade shows and encouraging people to scrap their travel plans and, and confining people to their homes. Uh, that is going to worsen the economic damage. There simply may be no way to deal with the public health emergency that doesn't involve sacrificing the economy. So. You know, in that context, policymakers can signal that they get that there are problems. That there are targeted things they can do to help the people who are who are most hurt by the by the economic damage, which is what we're discussing. And you know, part of what the Bank of England did today was it said, "Well, we stand at the ready to make credit available to companies that are actually having a hard time getting it through the banking system." Uh, there there can be uh, relief for workers who see their paychecks hurt as they can't get to work. Uh, banks are being encouraged to give uh, homeowners a break on their mortgages if they can't pay uh, while, while this economic damage is with us. But, but, you know, at the end of the day, we're going to have to put the clamps on the economy to deal with the public health emergency. Peter Goodman and Vincent McAvinney there. Thank you very much indeed for the moment. We'll be back in just a second. But first, here's Monocle's Daniel Bache with some of the other stories we've been following today. Thank you, Emma. Joe Biden has taken a big step towards winning the Democratic Party's presidential nomination following a convincing win in the Michigan primary. Biden, who served as Barack Obama's deputy for eight years, now has a commanding lead over Maine Democratic rival Senator Bernie Sanders. Dozens of Cuba's top cultural figures are calling for the release of dissident artist and activist Luis Manuel Otera Alcantara. The 32-year-old was arrested 10 days ago and is awaiting trial on charges of insulting national symbols and damaging property. Critics say the case is politically motivated. And today's Monocle Minute reports on the opening of the highest viewing deck in the Western Hemisphere. It's called the Edge and stands at 345 meters tall above Hudson Yards in New York City. You can read more about this by heading to monocle.com minute and subscribing to our daily bulletin. Those are some of the headlines we're following. Now back to you, Emma. Thanks, Daniel. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Emma Nelson. Joining me in the studio, Vincent McAvinney and Peter Goodman. Well, in the middle of the ongoing crisis, the UK releases its new budget. The Financial Times has described Rishi Sunak's plans to unleash the largest rise in public borrowing in 30 years. Vincent, talk about timing. Yeah, talk about a budget that has to do everything. Not only, you know, is it dealing with Brexit and the negotiations which are ongoing now with nations around the world, it's got to deal with the problems that have built up after a decade of austerity, an election campaign which promised to turn on the public spending taps. They want to secure the seats in the North and the Midlands that they gained. And so they want to do what they're calling levelling up in the UK, so more investment. They've got big projects like HS2. You know, it is such a beast to 
get a hold of the UK economy at the moment. And you've got what is effectively an understudy having taken it on. Sajid Javid was sacked from Boris Johnson's uh, cabinet a couple of weeks ago. Rishi Sunak, who only became an MP in 2015, you know, nine months ago, he was a junior housing minister and now he is the Chancellor of the Exchequer. It is going to be quite an extraordinary day. And also, it's worth mentioning, for MPs themselves... Today, our health minister, uh, Nadine Dorries, has been found to have coronavirus, was in the Commons all of last week, was at an event with the Prime Minister in Downing Street. MPs meet countless people, both in Westminster and in their constituencies. The contract tracing with her is going to have to be incredible. She's self-isolated. But, you know, you're going to see all these MPs in the chamber today. This is like a petri dish as well for how this virus could be spreading. Um, In the midst of all this... um Peter, whose budget is this? I mean, Vincent there just mentioned the idea of Rishi Sunak being very green. Right. He's a, he's the new boy. So right. who's who's actually written this? Well, it sure seems like Boris Johnson's budget, and and perversely, and, and I Do don't you think mean. Boris, I mean, with, with no disrespect to Boris Johnson, but I'm not entirely sure he could actually sit down and. and do the budget single-handed. Oh, who's doing the actual yeah, handiwork? Who's, who's, I will who's, defer who's to pulling... people who keep much closer tabs on British politics and, and the machinations of government than I do. But, but I mean, most broadly, this is the moment where Boris Johnson is supposed to pay the debt to struggling communities in the north of England whose votes gave him the overwhelming majority that enabled him to get past at least the political problem of Brexit and onto the real economic problem. Uh, and it's about spending money on things like infrastructure and uh, boosting the health system and, and getting past the, the trauma of, of austerity. And weirdly, the coronavirus ends up looking like an opportunity for this government because uh, while, of course, it's a crisis, it's an emergency and it's fraught with risk. And I really don't mean to make light of the fact that it is a life and death situation for for, for real human beings. Uh, this government was in a position where it was dealing with the reality that economic growth was constrained by the reality that Brexit's going to be, it's going to make the economy less robust than it would otherwise be, however these trade deals uh, work out. And it had to pay this debt to struggling communities. Well, along comes the seeming apocalypse of the coronavirus. And now there's a public health emergency that allows the government to say, okay, forget the rules that are supposed to limit fiscal spending. Uh, we have an emergency at the door and we're going to have to spend uh, what it takes. And so so that that does uh, provide a certain amount of relief uh, from the traditional uh, Tory position that you're supposed to worry about things like budget deficits. Vincent, can you see this as, a, as an opportunity for the government? I can see some uh, big opportunities for Boris Johnson because, do you know what? This is the greatest excuse. If Brexit goes fundamentally wrong and in you know two years' time the economy has stagnated, we've been through a recession, it's all bad, they will blame coronavirus and not Brexit. This is the greatest cover they could have ever got for Brexit, shrinking the economy, leading to job losses, leading to a reduction in manufacturing, because they will simply say coronavirus changed everything. And it may well be about to be, but it didn't help that our economy was already in a kind of holding pattern, uh, waiting to see what would happen. But I think there is a possible problem for the government, which is the people... You know, if you remember one thing about the 2016 referendum, it was a red bus that went round the country that Boris Johnson stood in front of and said £340 million extra per week for the NHS. So far, the NHS has not received that check. 
per week. And if the health service is going to manage what it's already trying to do and combat this, it will need more money. And people will start wondering, where is that money coming from and when is it going to go into the NHS? Finally, as Italy goes into lockdown, the toilet rolls fly off the shelves in the supermarkets and we all play Hunt, the hand sanitizer. Some big firms are using the coronavirus problem as an experiment in home working. For many, however, this is already the norm. There are at least, I think, three people in this room who regularly use their home as an office. Nodding from both of you gentlemen, from me as well. Um, we're just sort of exploring here the benefits, the ups, the downs and what you lose out when you work at home. But first, tell us where where you work when you work at home? It's really, so I think it really is down to your home setup, how well you can do it. So I'm fortunate I've got a spare room, there's a desk in there. And if I'm working from home, I try and sit at that desk in that room and work there. Because it otherwise home just feels like a, I, I can tell that like, if I'm in that room, then I'll log the hours and I'll know when I was there and how much I've worked. If I try and work at the kitchen table, I'll stop and do something else for a while. And then I'll worry that I haven't worked enough. So then I'll work more hours and then I'll work later into the night. So you really have to be incredibly disciplined in order to work from home effectively. I have just invested in a 75 centimetre space in my bedroom that I'm now going to dedicate to my space because... I have the problem with the kitchen table. I find myself working at home and then the doorbell goes, or indeed I can do Skype calls while cooking pasta. It's one of those things. It's a world of multitasking. Oh, you absolutely eat more working from home as well. You can (laughs) snack and graze your way through the day. God, that fridge is your friend. How about you, Peter? What's it like with you? You've got small kids. I actually don't have that problem. I do have small kids uh, and I have a bunch of stairs that separate my office in a little nook uh, that's part of my bedroom from the kitchen. So I have to think long and hard. Do I really need to go down and get another cup of tea, a snack? Uh, I, I find it a great place to work and I find it much more productive than going into an office. Why? Because there's no one to bother me with their personal problems. There's no one who's happy to see me after not having seen me or uh, who feels threatened by my presence or I just don't have to deal with the rest of humanity. I mean, my wife also works from home. We usually have lunch together. That's a nice break in our day. And other than that, we're confined to our separate spaces on different floors of the house. And one of us puts the kids on the bus in the morning and one of us goes and gets them afterwards. Uh, And we don't reconvene until it's time for dinner. And by that point, my laptop is in a different room. And after kids go to bed, I can immediately get back to work. Now, I, you know, I work for a company that's headquartered in New York and has offices in Hong Kong. So after kids go to bed, I can I can go up and do however much work is is needed. It's It's a very good rhythm. So, spared of the threatening presence of Peter Goodman in your <laughs> office, um, I, I'm not entirely convinced by working from home for the simple Don't. reason that when you do have to talk to other people, it's generally over some awful Skype or yeah. conference calling. I mean, when I heard about um, Christine Lagarde having an, a video conferencing call with EU ministers, I can just imagine, you know, Frau Merkel, could you dial in, please? It's dreadful. You never get any human contact, do you? Yeah, I think it's that, you know, I work as a journalist and it's very different to other professions. So my experience of working from home as a base the past couple of years is I'll work from home a bit, but I'll get out because I need to interview someone or speak to someone and things like that. But there are times where I have found it incredibly isolating to work from home and it's hard to tell kind of where you are in the week sometimes. And I think social interaction is lost. And I think the other thing that people don't realize is... um, 
you can start to see things where there isn't things going on in the office. And also, because you're all just communicating via emails and, and WhatsApps and things like that and not really seeing what's going on or the attitude of the management or what they're thinking, rumors can spread like wildfire. And it can become a game of Chinese whispers about what's really going on with the company or who's doing what or if someone isn't pulling their weight. Um, you know, there's that kind of thing can happen. People will stalk co-workers' social media to be like, oh, it's weird that you're posting this story at a, you know, a spin class at 11 when you should kind of be working at this time. No, it's that whole flexible working thing can lead to issues. So we have stalkers and uh, threatening presences here. It's not quite working yet. Um, One thing that it's interesting, though, is it works for journalists that you can actually work at home. You can you can you don't have to speak to people if you don't want to. One thing, though, is that in this in this enforced self isolation, which a lot of society might be having to consider, that does it doesn't work for every profession, does it, Peter? Yeah, that's right, and it doesn't work for every person. It doesn't work for every profession, and I think Vincent's quite right that there's a lot of value into those unplanned interactions you have with people. I mean, this is what tech companies have have found through through their research, because of course they care more about innovation than anybody else. There is truly value into bumping into someone you weren't expecting to encounter and finding out that they're working on something you've never really thought about, but connects to something that you've thought about. I, I mean, personally, I do find it valuable when I do go into the office and interact with editors and and, and other writers uh, and there's a there's a brainstorming process. There are some professions where you clearly just you know, I don't want air traffic controllers working from home. I don't think that's a very good idea. Uh, I imagine that if lawyers uh, all worked from home uh, and and didn't have any uh, person-to-person interaction or, you know, heaven forbid, doctors, uh, we, we would not like the contours of that at all. Who would you yeah, like I, to work from I'll home? I'll jump in on that point. I was with a doctor yesterday in Doncaster. I was doing a piece about coronavirus, and I was interviewing him in his office, and we were talking, and I pointed to his webcam and said, oh, how often do patients want to, like, you know, do webcam? stuff you know do, do how often is that and he's like in 10 years i've used it three times he said patients do not like it they always want to come into the surgery and the fundamental one point that we've missed here is working from home only works if you've got good broadband sure. there are huge swathes particularly in the uk of the country where broadband is a, you know is, is a disaster you can't get high speeds it really only works if there's decent broadband that you can work on from home And it also creates some issues as well of, you know, if you're dealing with sensitive data and the transmission of that data through emails or any other services you're now using, it can become more uh, accessible to people that might want to try and steal it and things like that. So it does open up issues for businesses. And there's also a question of like, you know, businesses are expecting that you have the highest speed data at home uh, and that, you, you know, you're ready to work like that and you've got the kid at home to do your job. Maybe you don't. There is a then an expectation of businesses that you should be able to do this and you should actually say, well, should you maybe be contributing to this? That's one question as well. Peter Goodman and Vincent McAvinney, thank you very much indeed for joining me in the studio. In a moment, we'll hear a little bit more about Andy Warhol's enduring appeal as we look at a new exhibition at Tate Modern here in London. You're listening to Monocle's House View with Emma Nelson. Stay tuned. And if you've just tuned in, welcome back to Monocle's House View. Finally, today is Andy Warhol, the artist we need in 2020. A major show of his work is opening at Tate Modern here in London, featuring more than 100 works and charting two decades of his career. Robert Bound is Monocle's senior correspondent and he's walked the course. I'm delighted to say he joins me now. Rob, what's in this huge show? 
Um, pretty much everything uh, you'd expect, Emma, uh, is is checked and correct. A lot of wonderful loans um, have come uh, come across the Atlantic from New York for this show, um, and it's an interesting thing. With any Warhol show, there was one fairly recently. There was also a wonderful show of collectors as artists as collectors at the Barbican, which had a lot of a sort of Andy Warhol ephemera. Is whether this is a show about Andy Warhol or whether this is a show about Andy Warhol's art, and this this new show Tate Modern. Um, expertly walks that perilous tightrope. How does it do that? Because he has the reputation for a man whose persona actually eclipsed what he produced. Yeah, well, it's a funny one, isn't it? He's the most famous person that no one ever knew. Um, he was a person obsessed with. He was a famous person obsessed with the fame of others that no one ever kind of had a sit down conversation with, and all the rest of it. Uh, and this show, this show, sort of addresses those things in a few sort of intimate ways, um, and. Kind of most obviously it does that with displaying some of the ephemera of Andy Warhol. Um, so it shows you some of the wigs and kind of how t- kind of tatty they were. They've been they've been kind of um, they've been kind of kept fairly well, but it, it you know it displays stuff that sort of shows the vulnerability of of Warhol, the kind of the person. He was very physically frail um, and, and had a number of disease. He was shot in 1968. He was pr- pronounced dead. So it does all those things. It goes into the kind of it, it kind of opens the bedroom door and it opens the apartment door of Andy Warhol um, one of the most amazing things is it's got the the, the ticket and um, the and the, the, the ship manifest that Julia Warholha um, his mother took um, from um, from Eastern Europe um, to the United States in the early 20th century um, so it's got lots of little bits that add up to the sum total of trying to make sense of this unknowable mega famous artist it's a funny thing that seems to be happening as a trend in, in exhibitions at the moment. Um, running concurrently in the United Kingdom at the Royal Academy is an enormous Picasso exhibition which talks about all the, uh, the, the paper that he used in the run-up to his, his, you know, his, his enormous art, artwork. The Leonardo exhibition in Paris, they're looking at all the drawings that were used in preparation for his big artwork. Rodin, the big exhibition's coming to London next year where they're looking at the plaster um, plaster casts that pre-worked his um, his enormous sculptures. Is this you know how much is this a thing at the moment that people are really looking at the person behind the artist? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is. People want to see the mark of the artist on the on the page. They want to see the grubby fingerprints. They want to see the they want to see the sort of marginalia, don't they? And and that's exactly what all the all the shows you've listed do. The particular thing with Warhol is that he left diaries and he left he was a great collector of things of tickets of all sorts of stuff uh is is how much that kind of shows you of how, of how personal that stuff was and how honest he was even to himself in his own diaries um and in his own marginalia um there is a fit because he kept everything and he recorded all his conversations on dictaphones and all the rest of it um, with all sorts of people, is actually that performance and art kind of infringed upon almost uncomfortably. I would say every moment of his of his life, everything became an artwork, as we know. It'll be interesting to see also how um, how this show is is kind of regurgitated through social media. I mean, a lot of people have obviously said he invented he invented Twitter, he invented Instagram specifically, and all the, these sorts of things fifty years before anyone had thought of it. So it'll be interesting to see how this is reviewed, 
through the prism of sort of social media by by regular gallery goers rather than the critical faculty. Indeed, well, one loud voice from the critical faculty is a man called Blake Gopnik, who's just published an enormous biography of Andy Warhol, Man, uh, Life as Art is his book. And he claims that Warhol overtook Picasso as the most important and influential artist of the 20th century. That's some claim, isn't it? That is some claim. I mean, yeah, this is it's an, it's an interesting one. It's a great subject. It's a great um, it's a great uh, it's a great discussion to to start or argument to start if you're trying to sell a new thousand page uh, biography. I would I, I, I like his timing, um, but also it is an interesting thing. Everyone everyone knows Picasso was the kind of uh, the virtuoso who could draw. It was the best the best sort of had the best line drawing of, of anyone. He could perfect a, a painting at the age of nine. Um, but Warhol was an ama- also an amazing artist who tr- almost tried to sort of delete that from his practice. He did not want to see the hand of the artist in anything. And as you know, he went on to, 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 to he worked from photographs even rather than his own brilliant drawings. He was sort of scared of anything that was flesh, I think, even when it came to his own hand on, 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 on the paper. Robert Bound, thank you very much indeed for joining us on Monocle 24. And that's all we have time for today's programme. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bache and our studio managers were Steph Chungu and Christy Evans. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Entrepreneurs with Daniel. This week, a focus on the business of reducing food waste. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London time. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>